We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. This is your host, uh, Will Hall. And in the U.S., we just celebrated uh, Thanksgiving, uh, which is kind of a day of family and food, and it's a big holiday. But for a lot of us, for Native people, and I'm actually mixed, uh, mixed race, my mom is American Indian Choctaw. And so for a lot of us, um, it's not really a day so much of celebration. It's also a day of mourning and remembrance and really a day of, of great concern for how um, U.S. society, as well as, as many societies around the world, haven't really come to terms with the Euro- European colonialism in North America and the Western Hemisphere and the way in which um, colonialism has decimated people's lives, destroyed cultures, destroyed um, native society, and still is causing problems. We're still living with that legacy today. And so today is kind of a bit of a uh, Thanksgiving special here on Madness Radio. We have a very special guest from Thunder Bay, Ontario, Canada, Stella Montour is Ojibwe First Nations, and she is an advocate for mental health. She's done quite a bit of public speaking and public education in Canada involved with a group um, called Photo Voice that we're going to be hearing about. She also worked uh, with a young offenders facility in the criminal justice system in Canada. She's also a grandmother. Welcome to Madness Radio, Stella Montour. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have you on the show. Now, how did you get involved with the mental health system to begin with? I know you have a, a long story, and I'm really interested in hearing about the work that you're doing um, today. But where did it kind of all begin for you in terms of being involved with the mental health system? Well, in 1991, I was working in um, in a in a young offenders facility, and um, a lot of uh, the youth that I was working with um, started disclosing a lot of different kinds of abuse to me, and I guess um, for me that was a turning point, and I was starting to feel uh, really depressed and just knew that I was in denial about uh, some things and that I was a, a victim myself, and I guess it all collided and came together on in 1991, and I I was hospitalized. In 1991, I had a breakdown. I didn't know what was happening to me, and I was um, diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia, and that was the beginning for me. What, so when you say you had a uh, a breakdown, what was what was happening to you at the time? What what do you mean when you say you had a breakdown? Well, I was uh, sent away on a. Uh, on a for for my job, I was sent away on um, a really intensive um, healing program through um, my workplace, and I ended up going to something called Flying on Your Own, and it's a it's a it's a program for it was a program for native communities and it dealt with all kinds of issues and I think it just opened everything up and I ended up in that five-day intensive program um, 
slipping away from reality, hearing things, animals talking to me, and you know, um, people from my like my, my my family line, my grandpa, my grandpa, they'd passed on, and I was seeing them, and you know, like there was, I was just grieving big time, and I was delusional, and I was talking, talking crazy, and my my family didn't understand like what was happening to me. So I was uh, taken to a lot of different places for healing before I actually got to the hospital. What kinds of places were you taken to? Did they try kind of traditional approaches first? or? Yeah, some of them were. And all that stuff was kind of new to my family, the, the healing lodge and uh, medicine men. Those were new concepts to my family. And um, we went there and I was healed by a medicine man. And, they were taking the uh, bad spirits away from whatever was, whatever my disease was. And then another friend of mine who, another native friend of mine who was a Christian, took me to people who were praying on me and telling me to denounce everything that I had, everything they could think of. And uh, I, I, had, I hadn't even, I, some of the things they were making me denounce, I didn't even, I hadn't done. So those kinds of things, like... They were really, really difficult on me after I came came around and I was well again, because I got the message that I was um, very unclean. There was something terribly wrong with me, and to this day I still have difficulty with that because it was so archaic thinking. So it sounds like it sounds like you tried both traditional healers that maybe your your family, even though you're native, your family wasn't. Um, wasn't so involved in native healing traditions, and so you tried that, and then you also tried Christianity, and, and the Christian healers were trying to get you to denounce things? What do you mean, like um, confess that you were sinning or had done bad things, and even though they didn't even know what you had done? Yeah, they were telling me to denounce the use of a Ouija board, which I've never had anything to do with. Dancing, you know, like anything that, that's immoral to them. But I had, like, some of the things that I was saying, as, like, I was telling them I never did that in my life. So, you know, it was, um, it was really scary. It sounds like it was a really kind of fundamentalist Christian group of some kind. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I think it was. Um, I, I'm, I think they were Pentecostal people. So they were really, your family was kind of really thinking that there was, like, spirit possession or demons or that you needed some kind of exorcism? At this point, is that why they kind of took you to a Pentecostal Christian? I don't think my family knew how what what to do with anything. People um, of uh, in higher places, like priests and um, chiefs, the chief of the reserve and of my reserve was saying that these like people were directing them in how to get help for me. What kinds of healing did the native healers try that also wasn't wasn't helpful how did that go in you know all the time you know in the years past i always had the um the conflict whenever i got sick i was fighting between um my native my nativeness and christianity like now both of those are good they, they have good in them and the 
Christianity was seemed to be winning. Whenever I was in a, a manic episode, it seemed to be winning because it's a dominant society, and it seems to be there's, if there's so much non-Native people in the world, then they must be right. But what about being reminded all the time that, you know, Stella, you are Native. Even if I'm in a church, like, she's our Native representative. She's going to tell her testimony today. You know, like, you're always centered out for being Native, so... That I I I always knew that you know I belong where I belong and looking around all over the place I ended up finding like the recovery process and the recovery is within me and accepting who I am which is you know ultimate healing is knowing who you are and what you represent and accepting that and there's always going to be trouble for you and it's just the way that you take it on that given day. You know, picking your battles, what are they going to be? So you went to um, Native healers, and they weren't helpful at that point, and you went to these Pentecostal healers, and then eventually you ended up in, in the hospital, right? How how was that for you? What kind of experience was the hospital for you? Well, the hospital was um, traumatic. It was probably the... Um, if what happened in there hadn't happened, then I wouldn't... I, it might have been helpful, but what happened in the hospital was that like I was um, in in there for three months, and I wasn't allowed out on the grounds. I could see the um, the birds. I could see the grass, but I couldn't touch the earth. And that that is like um, for a native person to be locked up and not being able to touch the earth is extreme, I think, um, pain. It's inflicting pain on a person because we're so close to that. And what happened in there <clears throat> is unspeakable and unimaginable, but it does happen. I was um, uh, sexually assaulted by another patient. I told my husband at the time um, that what had happened and he called the police, and he also called the uh, um, talked to the hospital administrator, and said that he wanted you know this um, taken care of because he put me in a hospital, not hurt anyone and not to hurt myself. But here I was, um, this thing happened, and when I told the staff, they just started laughing at me, and. Um, uh, from that, from there on in, I think I got sicker because well, no, nobody did anything. The police didn't do anything, and the hospital administrator just moved that patient to another ward. So that was my initial experience, and from that point on, I was never right again because what I was trying to deal with, what had happened to me in there, and I, you'd think that people were supposed to be helping people with mental health problems would, you know, listen and do something about it because that's their job. They shouldn't be, you know, um, killing a person's soul and spirit the way that they did me. That's really, that's really awful. And this was a hospital in uh, in in Canada, and what other kinds of things happened? Were you you were there for about three months? Is that right? 
Mm-hmm. Were you you were given a diagnosis of schizophrenia? Did they do tr- any kind of treatment? Were you given medication, or was there therapy? Oh or yeah. What, what other kinds? Yeah, I was um, I was uh, always on Haldol, which blacked out would black me out. Like I would uh, black out from Haldol. Like one time, um, I had blacked out for a month. I don't remember from the time I went in there to the time I came out. And um, as a result of that, if ever I have to go into the hospital, which I haven't had to do in five years, um, it's on my record never to uh, use Haldol because that's the kind of effect it has on me. It happened a number of times. So that three months was, um, I can't hardly remember anything except that happening and trying to make us think and getting out of there. Um, I talked to um, the patient advocate at the hospital and I talked to different people, to um, people that are in a position to help. Um, I talked to them and asked them if, you know, if there's anything that could be done in terms of um, getting some kind of help and being able to talk about it with somebody. And nobody listened. And that's the kind of thing that happens, you know, the the racism that I encountered during, during that time. And they pretty much shoved it under the carpet. And that was uh, something that, you know, I, I lived with for, you know, up until about three or four years ago. And that happened in 1991. So I didn't get help for that until I spoke to the woman who made the documentary, which was Laura Sky from Toronto. And she was the one who actually listened and validated my um, story. And that was the first time anybody anybody ever believed me and so since then since then I've been um, talking and it's 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 made me um, stronger because I'm not living a lie anymore Stella when you um when you were in the hospital and you said you were experiencing racism what kinds of experiences happened well just the fact that None of this was taken seriously. That was my initial thing. But during the on and off, like I was hospitalized, I think 15 times after that, either for you know severe depression or mania. And um, some of those uh, frontline workers, the workers, would make fun of my um, my self-expression in terms of you know. Um, being a native person, um, I was ridiculed for that. And then, you know, trying to work through the system in terms of help after I found out there was there were um, people out there like me, like consumer survivor, other consumer survivors who who had experience in terms of dealing with things. Because the first thing I I had to deal with is when I got out of the hospital, I didn't have any medication or anything, so I didn't know what the heck was going on. I sat for a year at home, had no idea um, what had happened to me. All I did was sit there and, you know, drink coffee and realize it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon I hadn't done anything. 
And I didn't realize that I, I was in severe depression and nobody told me anything. So once I found that out, I think in 1992, I went into a manic episode and I went to the library and got stacks and stacks of books, like read everything that I could on uh, schizophrenia. And I didn't, I didn't um, think that I was schizophrenic. I didn't think that I was manic either. Um, today, I do, I do think that I have, I have um, bipolar illness. Because I can't, I I've tried going off medication, and either one of one of the two comes back. So when I say racism, it's like uh, when I tried to get into the consumer survivor um, uh, organizations that are here, I experienced racism from um, the members until you know, like they assumed that I was stupid and I didn't know very much. Just they just assume things like that, and then I started um, doing the things that I, like, I just started being myself, doing the things that I can do, and why well, I graduated from um, college, um, two-year community work degree or whatever, like a diploma, so, you know, like, I, I do have skills, but I've never been able to use them um in any job so the volunteer stuff that i do is right up my alley because it it's working in working with in community in the community and my community now is thunder bay and it's a mix like it's thunder thunder bay is like there's a lot of native people but there's a more white population stella how did you how did you get out of the uh, hospital? How were you able to, to get out of being locked up for three months? I quit. I quit uh, staying up all night, and I started eating. And the when I, I, I in the beginning, I guess I was uh, hearing voices and seeing things. So that's when I um, I was. That's how I got out. And my husband and like the my home reserve came to my defense. Like they were there all the time, and I I guess the hospital had never seen anything like it. Like a person have so much support because usually people are sent from northern communities, and like nobody makes a big deal of it. But I guess. Uh, because I was living a successful life, um, it really made a difference, and I had a real supportive family and community at the time, and they got involved. And my husband was um, was the same for the longest time, but eventually, um, because of my illness, um, I think we grew apart because of the trust issue and just the continuing bouts of uh, illness, it just seemed to put a lot of pressure on her marriage and there wasn't very much um, uh, things uh, in terms of support. Like we're just starting to get um, a family program going here and I think that if we had you know, pub- public education and there wasn't so much stigma on families that maybe my um, 
my family would still be together because in the process I lost my my job, my reputation, my I um my home. We had a really nice home and we lost well, his car, my car. I lost everything in the process and I had to start all over again with nothing but a mattress and a couple garbage bags. So it's like that was it it was a real hard place to come from and build myself and my my family up again. Let's talk about just in general the situation with the native um communities in Canada. How does the mental health system um really impact native mental health and what do you think is the role that um colonialism is is playing in in the kinds of experiences and struggles that are people that people are going through in terms of mental health uh today? Well, I think that uh certainly um residential schools really <clears throat> did a number on our on our people for people who don't know what for people who don't know what residential schools are can you just tell us a little bit about that about that history they used to come and in my mother's generation i'm uh, 50 52 actually i think uh, my mother my mother was at she's I'm first generation not going without um haven't been in residential school. My mother was uh was in residential school and she came back to the reserve and had no idea um what what her culture was about and she didn't have bonds um with her mom and her dad. And for me, like we I used to, um, my mom used to um, tell me things that seemed absolutely ridiculous. Like, uh, you know, we, start, we, we started going to school when I was, when I was in grade one, she used to tell us to run off the road and hide behind a tree or, you know, hide. And I used to think, you know, that, well, that's ridiculous. And she never told us exactly why that was, like, we had to do that. As a little kid, I used to think, you know, like, um, I wonder, you know, what would happen if we stayed on the road. And it wasn't until years later that my sister and I were talking about that, and we, we you know, said, uh, figured it out that my mother was saying this to us because she was afraid that the Indian agent would come and take us away and put us in residential school. Now, residential school tries to um, assimilate um, the native native children, and it pretty much does that. It's not just screws your whole life up because you never fit in anywhere, and they they take away your religion and put in, you know, at that time, uh, Roman Catholic uh, beliefs. So, and then, like, I grew up on a trap line. I remember um, <clears throat> my uncle singing and stuff before he went out on a hunt. And my my um, the, my aunts and my mom, that they would be the ones to uh, stay home and 
make decisions while my my dad and my uncle were off um, doing the hunting and that. So we, they had roles, um, you know, like uh, they had roles to play, both of them, and they weren't uneven. But when you put colonialism on, and the, it becomes a man, becomes the 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 boss of everything. The religion you know, um, says that. So, women become um, forgotten about, and so it turns everything upside down. And you have these people that are robots, but you know when they get to the age of trying to get a job. They couldn't get one. It was like uh, you either were um, a woodcutter or, you know, a seasonal guide up here anyways. And then they started taking the trapping away, and there's nothing left. So you've got all these um, people with, you know, no boundaries, not having healthy boundaries, and who have nothing to look forward to and end up, you know, with um, drinking, you know, and the problems of that day. Now, today, we have youth who are in the same boat but with a lot more escapes, so you have a high rate of uh, suicide. And the social and economic um uh situations aren't very good up here because the uh, wood industry is no longer. So it's very complicated and um, you have a whole generations and generations of people who are um, really, really um, screwed up. I don't know if I explained that well enough, but did my best <laughs> How do you think the mental health system could do a better job of helping people? Well, one of the things I think that, you know, they they could do is um, allow people to be themselves. Um, if they're a Native woman, you know, like, just let let people be themselves and not try to make them into something else. Um understand the the history because the history is like the I think that's the biggest thing is the history where people have to be taught in schools like public schools and um the, the understand that there's a um generations of people with post traumatic stress disorder and that's the biggest thing is that all of us are healing from something like you could just just you did history of the United States you'd have you know a wounded knee in um northwestern Ontario you'd have bended elbow those are you know fights for land and things for trying to you know improve our quality of life so I think that that's a that's a a real um those are real big issues. If people understood they quit, you know, um, calling us down and the racism would be less. And 
even, I think, uh, I'm not even sure what you call, I don't know, I think that that's one of the biggest things. And then the other thing is start hiring um, more more mental health workers. It would make it easier in terms of, especially people coming from the north, they still speak the, speak Ojibwe fluently. Um, it would help to have translators uh, to, to explain like what's going to be happening, and so that people will stay to get help rather than, you know, um, go back home quickly without getting the help that they need. Um, hiring more police, you know, native native police. Encouraging young people to um, go into those professions. And um, I guess allowing people to choose what kind of um, treatment they want. Do they want to go with their way, like the the traditional Ojibwe way, Anishinaabe way, or you know mix it with the um, traditional psychiatric treatment? Having choices and being able to make those choices yourself. And not being, um, I guess, uh, I don't know what the word is. Like, if if you don't follow the the government's way, that you be your check will be taken away if you're on disability. Those those kinds of things, I think, would would help. And then believing, you know, that um, this is temporary. That you know. I am going to recover, and it's an ongoing process, especially when it's uh, nation, nations of people that are affected by colonialism and education. I guess public education is the most important thing. So I know that you said that um, in your own experience you did go to Native traditional healers and that it wasn't helpful, but do you do you think that it can be helpful that people who are having mental health crisis or maybe in those kind of manic states or states that would be called manic that you went through would be able to get help from some of the traditional healing um, ways? Yes, I think I think they could, like that people could because um, after, after everything was said and done and um, I was left alone, I, I didn't have my husband with me. Um, I didn't have anybody, you know, everybody went away after a while, like after I was diagnosed and I did well for a while, then I'd, then I'd have a relapse. Um, there wasn't anybody after a while, so I made, made decisions myself. And one of them was to um, to go my own way. It's like I don't belong to any particular group or, or any Native group. In the beginning, I did go back to what they call the sacred circle, which is like um, you go there and you you tell your troubles and we we pray and smudge and just tell you know leave everything there. It's um, it was really really helpful for me, and I still go to the to those every once in a while, but. I make my own choices, and I think that's really important in anybody's recovery. Um, I'm not just talking about Native people here. Like, 
whatever your choice is and what you want to do, it's got to be your choice, not anybody else's. So that that's um, that's something that uh, I way way back in '92 I sat on an advisory committee for the hospital that I was in, and one of the things that I I um, voiced, you know, was that they were at that time just starting to um, have um, people, native people in there, and they were um, called elders, and they would. Uh, they would go and see the patients in the hospital, and um, because it was something new, um, anyone who came through that door, people were putting them into native native people that came through that door. They were putting them into a box. Oh, they they need to go if we they need the spiritual hope. We'll send him. Well, that's not necessarily the case. It's like um, like. No native person is always at the ready to receive that part because it's it has been beat out of us. So people find that when they're ready. At the time that I um that I went there I think I was uh I had been wandering the road looking for my right spirituality and I think at the time I was a practicing Jehovah's Witness, but they could never get me to quit smoking. <laughs> so that was uh, like I wasn't fully, but I had asked help from their elders to uh, pray over me, and they would have nothing to do with me. They um, told my husband that I was possessed and that they were afraid. So um, I never did get help from them, but that's the thing is that I. I went all over the place. I went to a Native Evangelical Church, and I also went to AA. I went to Codependence Anonymous. I went to Dual Recovery Anonymous and tried to find something that would fit my... um, So I use all of those services, but only when I want to and I feel that I need them. But I... I, um, believe in my own way and that's uh you know I'm a native person so I pray and smudge as I need it and I um go to powwows when I have a ride there because Thunder Bay is a very spread out um community. So you have you either have to have a, a car to get to some places because most of the powwows are held um in different areas that are hard to get to. What kinds of other things do you do for your wellness these days in terms of recovery, and what what kinds of messages might you have um, for other people who are having mental health problems and really kind of need some guidance? Well, (laughs) humor. (laughs) Laugh a lot. um, That's part of my... uh, When working with um, the... Sanity Project, which is which is our the name of uh, our theater group, um, uh, the name of the sh- the show that we recently did, where um, one of your friends met me. Um, we did the recovery monologues, and the, we we um, we write every we meet every Friday. We write. Um, we start out start out with the line like today I feel, and then you just 
write for five minutes, and then from that, uh, all the people who wrote, if there's four or five in the group, uh, we get like a monologue from different parts. Not one is, um, they're all written by all of us, the monologue itself. So it's a it's teamwork, and um, there's uh, we're all the people that are involved who do the show are at different stages of recovery. Somebody might be just um, finding out about it, and we had one one um, monologue that was on suicide, the death and the effects of it, and this woman acted it out, and mine was the. Um, uh, the funny one, and at the time I was, uh, we wrote this monologue while I was working with the mental health and criminal justice, and I had a funny story to tell. So a big part of the monologue that I that I do is my story. Um, that's how we get, we um, get get things uh, done. That's how we work together to get the monologues going. So. Um, that I guess journaling helps me. I write a lot of poetry. Um, um, doing things like photo voice is really helpful because it gets out, gets me out there. And um, there's usually a panel, and people ask us questions, and we we talk about our experiences and why we took the picture and um, get their feedback. And some people have never even heard of uh, bipolar or schizophrenia, and it's new to them, so it's um, really encouraging. What do you think are some of the biggest obstacles today to having good mental health and having healthy communities uh, among the native peoples in uh, in Canada today, I think a lot of um, what's happening is people are going back to their to their roots and um, being allowed to do that freely, even being supported. I think that's probably um, <clears throat> um, that's probably really healthy because I feel really good about having you know gotten there and being confident, you know, feeling self-confident about who I am and no longer, you know, pretending, you know, um, that I'm, um, I'm somebody else. I don't know how to explain that. I don't know if you get my drift. No, I think it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, the, uh, history of having, your culture taken away from you and then being silenced and not listened to in the hospital and then going through the process of trying to recover that and getting getting your voice back is that is that kind of what it is yeah yeah i guess it's um also living where i where i, I do it's there's a if i have a strong sense of um myself I know who I am, then, you know, I can't lie and say, you know, that part of what my problem is is racism, because it's it's actually, I think it's 
it's around the world with Aboriginal people that they're coming to that awareness that 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 is a real big problem. Like some people even have said to me that racism is a mental health problem because if people continually put you down day to day, you know, um, it becomes um, like from from day one when you're going to school. Like in my day when I was going to school, I remember. The things that learning about um, native people, and I didn't even know it was native people at that time. I was just a kid, and they they were you know teaching about the uh, savages or the savage. And it was uh, I didn't. It was confusing because uh, the further on I got in school, I realized like that there's something wrong with me. And then, you know, you get to high school, you get, like you go through grade school, and people call you names, you know, like squaw and stuff like that. It does nothing for your self-confidence or your self-esteem. And what it does is uh, continually tear you down all your life, unless you have, you know, um, a stable um, family, a stable, you know, somebody stable in your life that tells you that, you know, or teaches you how to fight that, how to how to deal with that. Because after a while, you know, it's you could call it a self fulfilling prophecy, but it's not. It's society's putting that on you. Like that's what I mean. It's like when you at times when I um, when I when I was sent I'd get manic. It was because of the frustration of having to deal with. People who didn't like me, not not even they didn't even know me. They're just, you know, the the shopkeeper, the woman at the grocery store, you know, who just shove you out of the way, you know, and that kind of thing is like, uh, you know, it, it doesn't happen all that much to me anymore because I learned to be assertive instead of being quiet because I was a very quiet person at one time. Like, um I did I never said boo if somebody was, you know, um putting me down. I would just allow it to happen. So I think, you know, like part of what's happening is we are waking up. Like we've been in a long sleep and we're starting to wake up and it's making the whole world uncomfortable. And I think that's great because Maybe you know we'll, we'll be treated like humans one day. <laughs> I'm I'm getting a little, um, but I that I think that that's a part of it. It's like a, the mental health problem that 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 becomes a mental health problem if you grow up in it because you're always feeling like you got to do better than ten times better than you know, the average person. So you've been really. Um very strong in your recovery and really been able to, to turn your life around. But what about, do you have friends or relatives or people who you really saw get crushed by this system of colonialism and racism and who, who didn't make it out through recovery and out through the other side like you did? Very much. I've seen a lot of people um, die from um, <coughs> suicide. Um, they were very young, like my, I had a brother who committed suicide, he hung himself when he was 22, 
and he was so young, and it was, um, I'm sure now, knowing what I know about mental health, that he probably was bipolar, because he would go for days without sleeping, and stuff like that, like, he was very, um, artistic, he'd build, you know, fantastic pieces of furniture out of, um, wood, like, um, pieces of leftover wood, so, you know, like, there was, there, there, I've seen a lot of my family and relatives go through, you know, uh, like, with mental health and addictions, because they were depressed as a result of not being able to get a job, um, you know, and that looming, that nothingness in front of you. But I think that, you know, it's that all of that is um, starting to change. Do you think in terms of of illnesses, because I know you're talking about illnesses, do you think that, you know, it's possible that it's trauma, that people have been through violence and that the colonialism is really at the root of it and then sometimes exactly. and yeah, and then sometimes it gets called an illness as a way of kind of blaming the person and saying, Oh, this is something that's wrong with you whereas in fact it's really something that happened to people and it's 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 really about trauma and the uh, oppression that went on. Yep, I think you got it right on the nose, you got what I'm saying. Yeah. And the other thing, do you see a lot of, because I know that you mentioned um, being medicated, over-medicated, and just being really blacking mm-hmm. out on the Haldol, and do you think that there's a lot of addiction that happens to the medication, that they people get put on the meds and then they become dependent on them, and that really what needs to happen is that there need to be, like you said, more options, more alternatives, that native ways and, and traditional healing arts need to be brought in as an alternative to medication, do you do you think that there ought to be more of that and more choices for people about that? Yes, I do. I definitely do. I really think so. I think there's, you know, if people are going to be on a disability, I really think that the disability should also be, you know, um, changed, like the amount of money a person gets, because there's not not there's not an awful lot a person can do, and when a person gets diagnosed with um, any of those, any of the mental uh, illnesses, like, yeah, that it's happened, it's almost a given that it will become, they'll become dependent on it, unless they have, you know, um, they do research and figure out whether, you know, like, um, some people don't even know that some of the things that they're put on are addictive. Right, like it's caffeine or alcohol or, or some of the drugs that people take. Yeah, because Valium, Valium, you know, yeah, uh, oxys, like that's a real problem. Um, Oxycon is, is a real problem, beginning to be a real problem in the um, northern communities here in Thunder Bay. So, I, I mean, in northwestern Ontario. So, um, it's, yeah, definitely like the medication that's being given out like candy is having an effect on... Everyone from in in uh, northern communities. What um, Stella? What gives you um, hope? We don't have a lot of time left in our interview here, but I wanted to just ask you: What is it that gives you hope? What is it that um, you really think is some of the most exciting opportunities for for change and for a revitalization and a and a real recovery of the entire native um, culture and community there? I think that uh, uh, having um, our own um, 
finally, I think it's been in process about five years now. It's it's been in place. We have our own mental health center, um, uh, and and it deals with the person holistically. Um, I think that uh, they're putting a lot more um, money into um, native mental health services, and that's that's um, something we've never had before, and it's it's turning to the towards the direction of self-determination, which uh, Canadian people have been fighting for for a long time. So that's a new um, that's a new mental health center that's controlled by the native community, and it's on the reserve there. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. There's more money going into um, our own personal um, things. Uh, and they offer um, they offer holistic alternatives and spirituality, yeah. native spirituality yeah. as well. That's that's fantastic. That's great news. But that was really a result of a lot of years of fighting to get that. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, and it's still going on. I don't think it's ever going to end because there's all kinds of land claims that go along with. Um, you know, getting economically stable, which, which then hopefully the mental health of people will will get better. So we are just about out of time, but um, can you leave us with a website or a way that people can find out more information? At the moment, the only thing I could think of is the Canadian Mental Health Association, and I think on on there you could find um, a, a, a clip of the photo voice. You could hear the, um, you could, hear and read the um, photo voice. It's, it's called uh, Network Magazine. Okay, I'll p- make sure and put a link um, to that on the uh, website. Um, Stella Montour, thank you very much for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, you've been listening to an interview with Stella Montour, who is an Ojibwe native activist, advocate, and mental health organizer in Thunder Bay, Ontario. That's about all the time we have um, this week on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is broadcast every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. For our live internet stream, podcasting, show archives, and more, visit madnessradio.net. Madness Radio is co-produced by Freedom Center and The Icarus Project. For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. KWMD, Kasilov. 90.7, Anchorage 104.5.